This week, our executive producer, Adam Gobeski, suggested we watch the 1971 movie The Andromeda Strain, but we figured as long as we were watching a really slow-paced 1970s sci-fi classic, we'd watch Solaris instead. Welcome to Cinematic Respect. I'm your first co-host, Jessica Clares. And I am your second co-host, Charlie Wallace. And today we have a third co-host. I think this is a first. <laughs> I'm your executive producer, uh, Adam Kobeski. So we've had you on as a co-host before, but this is the first time we've had, we've had yes. three people on this end of the conversation. Uh, and this week we are reviewing the 1972 Russian film Solaris. And our guests are Billy and Topher from the... We Watched a Thing podcast. Welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having us. Pleasure to be here. So you two are, so you're actually in the film industry. One of you is a cameraman and one of you is a visual effects artist. Billy's worked in the actual film industry. To say that I'm in the film industry is generous. Okay. (laughs) Well, I'm willing to be generous if you are, I mean... (laughs) <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. We lowly, lowly in- television worker Topha and <laughs> feature film animator Billy. Oh, nice. <laughs> well, um, so you two have another movie podcast which I've listened to and really enjoyed. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about about your show? Uh, our show started some month. When did we start? November last yeah, year. November, Billy, yeah. Yeah. Billy and I have known each other for over 10 years. Would Our, our friendship was largely based on love of film really and we would constantly sit around while we should probably have been working um talking about this film or that and being as easily as amused by ourselves as we were we were like you know what other people need to hear this um so we got some microphones hit record and sent it out to the world <laughs> that's pretty much how all podcasts get started is yeah people assume everyone else needs to hear what i'm saying <laughs> Absolutely. Just uh, it's the birth of the podcast really, just a stunning <laughs> sense of entitlement. <laughs> uh so we'll start out with a little bit of a synopsis about the movie. It is Wait, this this is a movie? <laughs> I I thought we were going to talk about the 1986 Atari 2600 video game Solaris. <laughs> we'll get there. We That's have what to go I chronologically. <laughs> oh, I see. Gotcha. How many hours did you play, Adam? <laughs> Uh, probably a couple. It, it's, it's, it's a tough game, although it's, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> Is that game based on any of this whatsoever? I think I looked up. No. <laughs> I looked up a little description of the game and it didn't sound similar at all. No, no. It's basically a spiritual successor to Star Raiders, the okay. classic Atari game. So yeah, there's name only, I think. <laughs> So this is a 1972 Soviet film directed by Andrei Tarkovsky, based on a 1961 book by Stanislav Lem, also called Solaris. And this is the story of Chris Calvin, a psychologist who is sent to a space station orbiting a planet named Solaris. And he's there to identify uh, whether the mission should continue or not. And when he arrives, he finds that of the three crew... One of them has actually killed himself, and the other two are rather distraught. And then he soon discovers why that is. And there's a question as to whether or not the planet itself is attempting to either contact them or communicate with them or study them in some way. Uh, So the planet itself seems to react to people's memories and the people who actually approach it. It 
can form shapes on its surface that kind of mimic the information that it's getting. So there's a lot of question about whether this planet is sentient or not. Whether it has intelligence itself, whether it's trying to communicate, and whether uh, the crew members can actually understand the information that it's giving back. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the impression I got from the movie was that they had discovered this planet a very long time ago when the movie takes place. Is that correct? Yeah, probably. So Lem's book's a little more explicit in how this works, and he actually is interested in different things from what Tarkovsky is interested in. Uh, so Lem's book, uh, basically the idea is that they discovered this planet with this ocean that appears to be sentient in some way, but in a way that uh, people just simply can't communicate with it or even understand what it's attempting to do. So Lem's book's really all about the nature of communication and what would it mean to actually encounter something in space that's so alien that we just can't even comprehend. Like we wouldn't even know where to start to talk if talk's even the right word with this uh, intelligence. But so in the book, the planet was discovered quite a long time ago and pretty much all science has now been focused on the question of Solaris. And there's a whole field of Solaristics that's uh, (laughs) created. But the thing that the Lem keeps pointing out is that it's essentially like looking out a window and describing everything that you see out the window, but not having any actual understanding of what, how things work to borrow a Noam Chomsky's example of this sort of thing. And so Lem's interested in about communication. Tarkovsky, definitely not really interested in that at all. But uh, I think that's where some of this stuff comes from is just building off the book. So uh, Billy and Topher, you were two that chose this movie, which, Made me happy because it's been a long time since I've seen this and I really enjoyed it the first time I did. Is there anything in particular that drew you to this movie? What did you think that you were going to be seeing before you saw it? Yeah. <clears throat> oh, sorry. There's that There's that wedding. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think that part might have been uh, before we started. But uh, one of you two was at <laughs> a wedding until 2.45 in the morning. And it's now, I think, about 9 a.m. your time. <laughs> one of us hasn't had the best night's sleep ever, but anyway. <laughs> so the film Solaris had been on my uh, my watch list essentially for for quite a while, as had Stalker by mm, Tarkovsky, yeah. which I still haven't got to. But um, when Billy said said to me, um, "We need to pick a film to do," and I went through the list on your guy's site and saw Solaris there, I was like, "This is great. This will force me to <laughs> to get around to seeing this film, which I'd been aware of because." It had, I assume I'd read about it in various um, science fiction in cinema or whatever, and it sounded interesting. And the impression I had of what the film would be actually does kind of marry up pretty well with, with what the film is. I was a little surprised. I was expecting uh, more space. <laughs> I was surprised at how much time was spent on Earth. Uh, when you read the the summary of this film, I was just... A little surprised to see about 45 minutes at the start all set on Earth. And I was reading that Tarkovsky's original draft, actually two-thirds of the film, was all set on Earth. And Lem was like, <laughs> nope, scrap that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, I guess right off the bat, we should mention that if anyone out there hasn't seen the movie, it's, I think, around two hours and 20 minutes long. Yeah. And it actually has a two-act structure, or two-part structure. So what I took... Uh, two hours and... 46 minutes. Oh, actually. two hours and 46 three minutes. Hours. Well, it, it only it only feels like two hours and 20 minutes to me, Adam. That's how good <laughs> it is. But so 
I mean, depending on what your attitude is going into it, it can be a little difficult to get through in one sitting. A little I slow. Mean, yeah. But there is that natural break point in the middle that you can do. I think actually both times I watched it, I had to stop in the middle for various reasons. I don't think it was from being bored or being overwhelmed or anything. But I mean, that's, there's a lot in this movie to unpack. Mm. Well, then let's get unpacking. <laughs> <laughs> let's do it all right here. Yeah, getting getting back to the, the start of the film, which is set on Earth, which would be... We'd spend about 45 minutes, would we? Yeah, about um, that, yeah. On Earth? Yeah, which kind of put me in mind of 2001 a space odyssey not in terms of of plot or anything but just uh in terms of feeling as much as anything where you're, you're going into a science fiction film but rather than launching you into a bunch of futuristic action or, or anything it actually just slams on the brakes and says all right hold up and kind of eases you into this thing um which i think works i don't i think it's effective in in placing you in the story and i think it works as well with the tone of the entire film with this kind of almost meditative pacing mm. of the film uh i mean we go over five minutes before anybody says anything from memory uh we get a lot of imagery to start off with so if you came into the film expecting star wars for instance <laughs> that expectation's going to be blown out of the water very quickly yeah yeah, and those first 45 minutes aren't even in a city. They're in the countryside, too. So you get a lot of this nature and greenery and stuff, which is it's just an interesting way to do it, to kind of compare that landscape then with the rest of the film, which is on, you know, the, the space station. And you kind of see that difference in humanity. And a lot of shots of water, which at the time you don't realise is a, yeah. a key element on mm -hmm. Solaris. It's just part of the imagery they kind of set you up with on Earth. You know, Adam, you were mentioning to me a little bit earlier about that Tarkovsky often meant his movies to be seen multiple times if you really wanted to take everything in. And I think it goes to a little bit about what they're saying is there's a lot of imagery in the movie that if the first time watching it through, you might not even notice. Yeah. So there's lots of images here that are sort of like foreshadowing, except it's foreshadowing in such a way that like, it's more just like images. Like you get that long, slow pan in on the, the blonde haired woman in when they're in the house, right? That turns out to be his mother. And you get like these shots of just like the metal box that he's carrying with him that doesn't really pay off until the very end of the film. Yeah, uh, Tarkovsky, my understanding is he does, he saw cinema as, a, as an art form. And so part of that was the idea that you would you would view these movies multiple times and get more out of it with subsequent viewings. It's not designed to be, uh, you know, throwaway entertainment, or at least his films are not designed that way. Yeah, I gotta be honest, I didn't even notice, like, I noticed the metal box at the end with the plant growing out of it, but I hadn't noticed it anywhere earlier in the movie. And I think I'd watched, uh, my two viewings have been so far apart that that's not, not even something that I caught. So there's just lots of little things in here that, you know, you could go through and watch this four or five times and pick up a lot each time. I don't know, Jessica, what are, what are your thoughts? Like, did you know anything about this going in? No, I knew nothing about this going in. <laughs> <laughs> Which could be fun, honestly. Was it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I agree that I think that um, we have a preconceived notion of what sci-fi means to us these days. And so going into something that's that's very much not like that, like you said, setting that tone that's nice and slow and this kind of introspective, serious tone um, is different. I mean, it's not it's not bad at all. It's it's just a it's a very different thing. So being labeled sci-fi, I think, is right. A little, yeah. a little sneaky. <laughs> a, little, a little tricky. 
It does belong, really, to a... I mean, there's a bunch of sci-fi which winds up dealing more with the human condition than it does Mm -hmm. science in any way. Even things as obviously science fiction as Blade Runner is every bit as much about what it is to be human as it is anything to do with technology. So, yeah, it's... and uh, I mean, this comes... 1972, we're at an age where a lot of science fiction was, you know, so overt in, you know, costumes wrapped up in tinfoil so that it's so obvious (laughs) that, hey, it's the future. (laughs) Um, Whereas I actually really like that in Solaris, there's not much about it that looks futuristic. When, When we start off on Earth, that could be, you know, pick a date in the latter half of the 20th century and it could be then. It's not futuristic at all and it's not really concerned with it. Yeah, Um, and it doesn't try to extrapolate technology in a way that's overreaching like i mean they have a television that you talk to as if it were a phone i mean beyond that on earth there's not a whole lot you see like the television and the video there is about the only thing different than than anything we would have seen in the 1970s anyway even up in the space station i mean yeah the tvs were a pretty good prediction i thought really they were not too far off a modern flat screen that is in so many homes really but i mean otherwise even in the space station i mean like okay, going through the corridors and stuff, you see lots of lots of switches and circuits and things like that to try to make it look a little bit futuristic. But so I mean, some of the interiors are just artifacts, almost mm-hmm. like old instruments or paintings or things that are easily could have come before 1970s too. Like it just kind of gives you the sense of the past, but within this space station. There are those few paintings we see on the station. There's one in. There's definitely one in that dining room from memory, and there's a couple of others that are paintings that are hundreds of years old. And the camera lingers on them for, you know, a minute at a <laughs> time. Some of them. I mean, the camera lingers on everything in this movie. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Which is great. It's it's funny. The editor in me, because you know we both. Uh, a video editors as well is like just cut away just please cut the shot that's long <laughs> enough but when you're actually watching it 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 does a great job of setting that tone there's something about lingering cameras that just it it makes you feel strange which i think is what the movie was going for and i think the visual language of the film is great uh, i think that really ties into though into like one of the themes that tarkovsky ha- is trying to get at which seems to be nostalgia for earth right like they're out in space but they have like you know these artifacts they have the bruegel painting and the copy of don quixote and like they they literally like tape like the paper strips to the air vents so it sounds like the rustling of leaves right so so this is all i think meant to evoke some sort of emotional response regarding nostalgia and love of earth which would also tie into the first draft being mainly set on earth yeah <laughs> <laughs> I guess, yeah, let's talk about the space station a little bit and maybe what we think it's supposed supposed to be or supposed to represent. So one thing that we learn as the movie goes along is that the planet actually has the ability to pick up on people's memories and recreate things from their mind. I'm not sure. I think they mentioned that maybe that doesn't have to be something literal that happened to them even. Like it could be just something from a dream. Mm. But I don't know, Jessica, what was it? It can stabilized neutrinos <laughs> yeah i know i love the the yeah let's, let's just like look up some science terms and just throw them in there spin the science wheel exactly well, that's actually that's actually from lem uh lem's book has them being neutrino based oh, I, I i believe and, it yeah and when you it's, consider I, that I, the I, book was written in it's 61 
Yeah, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Was written in 1961, right? That's a little more cutting edge, I think, for them. Oh, sure, well, sure. no, because I'm, yeah. and that's what I was actually going to say is that, I mean, neutrinos were in physics land, you know, mythical, yeah. essentially. Yeah. It was like, well, we have this remainder that we don't have anything to, like, explain it. So we're going to call it a neutrino and we're just going to use it to fit this model. And so for him to pick that out of the... It, w- it was one of the weird things in the movie that's kind of seemed out of a place because there was no other discussion of technology that I could really remember. I mean, I guess, yeah, there was more like, oh, we're going to shoot gamma rays at the planet, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Or x-rays, but maybe talking about the encephalogram. But it was just, it was almost a little bit strange just because the rest of the movie just completely avoided that. I don't know. I liked all the little, like you were saying, the stuff in the walls, like all the little, there's like knobs and buttons and things, whatever, just just to make it look sciencey. <laughs> <laughs> But I like the fact that they gave it a kind of the the space station this is. They do give it that that lived-in feel. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That a lot of science fiction doesn't do. Everything's gleaming and new and, and flashing lights, whereas the space station is a dump. Right. <laughs> because it's inhabited by people who have gone Been going crazy. Mad. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it looks like it. Yeah. yeah. It looks like three men living together. And- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I think it gets worse as the film progresses, too. But, I mean, if you look at the amount of junk on the ground in the corridors, like you, it was definitely there when he immediately got there. But towards the end, it seemed like everything Stuff was trashed. Everywhere. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with the three guys living together <laughs> comment. So uh, the planet's able to recreate memories or people who were in the memories of the inhabitants of the space station. And for our protagonist, Chris Kelvin, he recreates his dead wife who uh, had committed suicide years and years before. In fact, we get a scene before that on Earth where he actually burns a picture of her as if he has finally decided to move on, maybe, or at least is attempting to remove him from his memory or get beyond it in some way or another. But uh, no, as soon as he goes back up to the space station, there she is. Well, and, you know, if that's the case, if he has moved past or whatever, I feel like that kind of explains his first encounter with the recreation mm-hmm. or whatever you want to. I don't know what term we want to use. Visitor. Visitor. Right? Isn't that what with they the, call them? With the, with the first. The guest. guests. Oh, guests. Yeah. Guests, yes. The first version of his wife and, you know, getting rid of her. And these visitors are able to regenerate themselves or at least reappear and they get more human-like every time. Well, I think it's the idea is that the more contact they have with the person who's remembering them, like the more human, at least for Hari's sake, right? It's it's not like, oh, I've been I've been around for four hours. I've developed conscience, right? It's 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 contact with Chris. It's interesting too, little things like when she first appears, her dress isn't a proper dress like it doesn't actually undo at the back like you'd expect because it's not it's not a real dress she's a representation of a memory and obviously that part is kind of missing oh yeah 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 Yeah, that's a good point right it's it's like the planet can uh emulate the form but not necessarily the function and so it gets things slightly wrong was that more addressed in the in the book specifically adam uh that comes up in the book as well uh there's one moment that i mean i don't think there's any way you'd be able to actually like adequately really show this on film but uh where chris kelvin notices that uh the soles of harry's feet are brand new as if she's never actually walked on them like there's no callousing Hmm. or or anything i also find it interesting that despite all the talk of guests harry is really the only one that we spend any time with like we never really even find out 
who visited Snout and Sartorium, like their stories just kind of aren't really important to us. Everything is seen through Chris's eyes, which is really interesting. Oh, yeah. So the other two inhabitants of the space station we haven't talked about are uh, Snout and Sartorius. And yeah, Snout is the one who's actually a little bit more friendly to some extent. It is talking to Chris um, (laughs) and at least trying to convince him that trying to tell him what the space station is all about and the things that are going to end up happening and that things are going to get worse (laughs) for him. But Sartorius kind of hangs out in his lab and wants to dissect. He actually says he wants to dissect Hari at one point. But um, so those are the two residents that are still there. And then uh, and Gabarian is the one who had basically left a spot open on the space station because he uh, committed suicide well, fairly that's recently. that's the one that Chris knew, right? Like Yes. COVID knew. It's, it's not that he left a space open. It's that he just couldn't take it anymore. Chris was coming before Gabarian killed himself. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Didn't realize that. Yeah. Gabarian couldn't hold on, right? And he, or at least the impression of the movie is that he thought the hallucinations were only happening to him. And so that's why he killed himself. Yeah, I mean, that is a really interesting point. We don't really get to know any of these other inhabitants of the space station all that well. They kind of keep to themselves. Um, yeah, it is interesting that you find out very little about the other inhabitants of the space station. You find out, like, their jobs and why they're there. But the interesting part is that, you know, with Snout, you never even really see him do anything so i mean i don't know if we wanted to talk in more about snout's visitors and how they seem to be injuring him in some way oh sure yeah go ahead snout's visitors seem to be injuring him in some way <laughs> <laughs> well like like he's always like rebandaging his hand right and when he goes to his birthday party like his suit jacket is torn after he's an hour and a half late like it seems like whatever is happening to him is not not nearly as pleasant as what's happening to Chris. Oh, I just kind of took it as he was with the suit jacket that he was just kind of unkempt and maybe that was the only one he had and he didn't bother to get to fix it or to make it look nice. But is there... You I guess that's also sense. possible. Yeah. But, but the wounds, I guess I didn't notice. Yeah. He's always like re-bandaging his hand and stuff, right? Like he's been fighting or brawling or been injured, attacked. And they do both keep telling Chris how lucky he is too that his visitor is is who it is. Um, They keep warning him that it could have been something from a nightmare or... Which is interesting that, you know, the one time you kind of do see a flash of Snout's visitor, he almost seems protective of him. That first time Chris is in his room and the, I guess it's the guest, is in Snout's bunk. And Snout is very quickly trying to get him out of the room so that he doesn't catch a glimpse of him. Yeah. And all you see is that ear. And there's a very Mm. specific amount of time that he wants them to wait. He's trying to decide exactly how long it's going to take before he can come back or before they can meet up. So yeah, definitely a lot of questions about that encounter, which I'm glad that the movie didn't answer. Do you think with uh, all the injuries, they're trying to contrast that with, you know, the guests and obviously their ability to heal? No, that's a good point too. Yeah, just showing the difference between... Like, are you supposed to trust that somebody who's injured is real? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that could have been an interesting way to go with the story, (laughs) right? I mean, you kind of expect this. Oh, this is going to be some crazy action sci-fi where all these these neutrino beings are resurrecting themselves and (laughs) killing people. Solaris, the the Zack Snyder version. The only way I can tell if you're real is if I cut you. (laughs) Exactly. Actually, that's... I was going to say, that's the thing, right? Doesn't that happen to the thing? I was just going to say the blood <laughs> test in the thing. Yeah. Uh, and then Sartorius in the film just has 
a little person jump out of his room, and that's all we see. Otherwise, we get absolutely no information about what's going on with him. Yeah, and the interesting part about that, too, is that Chris doesn't really react to that at all. He never questions where this little person got on the spaceship. No. I was actually wondering for a while whether Chris could even see that or whether that was just for the audience. That was a bit, yeah, there was no reaction to it at all. I wonder at this point, had Chris gotten a good sense about what was going to happen? I mean, as a solarist, wouldn't he know that these are the sorts of things that happen? Or did he really not have any sense when he went up there? Yeah, I, I guess the the uh, the movie is somewhat ambiguous, right? Because you get Burton's testimony at the beginning, which does seem to imply that the planet's been doing something similar. For a long time, right? Right. But also in the movie, they say that the uh, the guests don't start showing up until they had like x-rayed the ocean. Oh, that's true. Yeah which would have been a lot later. And everyone's really dismissive of Burton's account. So oh, that's despite true, the yeah. fact that he has heard these things, he doesn't believe it for a second anyway before he actually goes to the station. So one thing that Tarkovsky does, he uses color extremely effectively. One of his earlier films, uh, Andrei Rublev, I think was shot entirely in black and white, or maybe it was... Was it entirely in black and white, or was it... Um, it's like black tinted. and white until like the last five minutes yeah. or something. It's like black and white until the last five minutes where it actually shows paintings from the artist that the story is about. He actually had quotes earlier in his career too about how he didn't like to use color as much as other directors did just because he thought it was overused and that if you actually wanted it to mean something that you needed to use it less. So the impression I got was that at least the black and white scenes in this movie were trying to be used that way. Like maybe these are more expository in these sections i don't know what did you guys think about when he used black and white the first time it popped up i actually it it threw me a bit and i thought it was that desaturated effect you can get when people are shooting day for night that's what i thought too for a long time i thought the black and white were just nighttime scenes and it was interesting because he seemed to use different film stock as well. So sometimes the black and white was very grey. Sometimes it had a blue tint or quite a warm orange tint to it. And I wasn't sure if that was on purpose or whether that was maybe a cost thing that he was just using whatever film stocks he could get. <laughs> uh, so it sounded like it is actually partly a cost thing. They they apparently had four basic stocks. They had Kodak black and white, Kodak color. And then they had the somewhat inferior Soviet color and the Soviet black and white. Uh, and so I think he's actually, he has this limitation. So he's using it to deliberate effect, right? Like, I think the Soviet color shows up on like the earth scenes because it's slightly more faded than like the color on the station. I will say though, that uh, in reading uh, interviews with like people that have worked with them, I believe was like the art director on this film suggested that part of the reason that he uses black and white and color is because they couldn't afford to use just color. So he had black and white film that he had to use. So he just tried to justify it <laughs> after like, like, well, I have to use this black and white film. I might as well get something out of it. Yeah. Well, two hours 46 is a lot of meters of film. So I'm not surprised that they couldn't afford to use all color. <laughs> I did see that the, um, when the Soviet film folk, um, whatever their name was, when they uh, authorized production of the film, it was they authorized it in terms of meters oh, yeah. of film. They didn't say, "Here's your budget." It's like this: is how much film <laughs> you can. The, this is how long the film oh, can wow, be. Yeah. yeah, which I think actually equated to about a two-hour twenty film, and he wound up clearly getting a bit more out of them. Well, one because one thing, if you notice, is that the the, the length of shots is actually very long. Like, instead of cuts, he'll just pan around rooms and follow characters and stuff. 
like scenes will be two, three, sometimes four minutes long. Mm. Yeah, I actually thought the cinematography was really good. The composition and framing of everything in the art design was great. I found the cinematography better than the camera work, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Like I could see what they were going for, but the camera would often shake a bit <laughs> while they were doing it. Yeah. <laughs> and they never they didn't work together again, Tarkovsky and the cinematographer. Apparently they just blew up at each other mm, through the really? entire production. Oh, really? Yeah. Was it this or or was it the follow-up film? Sorry, I just I thought I had heard that uh in cuz so his next movie's Mirror, I think, right? And there was there was some talk of filming his mother without his mother knowing about it, like Tarkovsky's <laughs> actual mother. And, oh, right. uh, and the cinematographer was like, "Oh hell no, we I'm not doing this." And I think I thought that's what <laughs> really like happened. Ah, right. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> doing like something with mothers and it all comes tumbling down. <laughs> it's like Bowfinger, Adam. <laughs> yeah, Bowfinger. Well, because I think he wanted to get uh, his mom to like admit like very personal things, so she wouldn't necessarily do ah, that if she knew she were that. being filmed. And uh, the cinematographer was just like, "This is a horrible violation of privacy," or something like that. But going going back to that, um, the slow pacing and the lack of cuts in a lot of the scenes in this, it's I think it's really effective in unnerving you. I think it reminded me of a film from. Did anyone see a 2000, uh, 2011 film, uh, Steve McQueen's Shame? Oh, no, I haven't. I'm, yeah, meant to, but... It's a, it's a sensational film. And that a lot of the scenes in that film are one shot and not like a clever Spielberg one where the camera does a bunch of stuff. It's just a locked off camera and this thing, these scenes play out in front of you. And a lot of them are stunningly awkward <laughs> and you're actually begging for a cut like even though the scene's going to continue like just change something for the love of god and it doesn't let you off the hook it's just like no here it is um and uh, i think you get a a same kind of effect with solaris where it just it leaves you hanging in this space where is is this happening to chris is he going mad they're telling him he's not going mad but are you absolutely sure about it and that, that's coupled with this really sparse sound design in Solaris, where there's not a heap of mu- the music's effective in it, but it's not in it's not an overbearing score by any stretch. A lot of the time, it's this almost like being in an isolation chamber where it's just you and your thoughts, and slowly enough, you do go quite <laughs> insane. Yeah, well, it's not melodic at all. It's kind of atmospheric more than anything. Yeah, and also like I mean. These are mad people telling him he's not going mad. Why don't you listen to that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, the camera- is yeah. clearly off tap. Oh, yeah, like- <laughs> don't listen to that guy. <laughs> but the camera work, it's almost reminiscent of a horror film where you've got these long lingering shots that move slightly and it forces your eye to look around the frame for things that might be off. You know, you're looking around almost expecting something to happen in the background and it just unnerves you a bit. Yeah, I was just reading that the initially uh, Tarkovsky didn't want the film to have any music and just asked the composer to orchestrate ambient sounds. But then it got a, took took a little bit of a little bit of poetic justice on that and and was able to to put some in there. But yeah, initially it was supposed yeah. to have no no music. I was uh, there was an interview that I'd watched online with that guy and yeah, he was laughing about it where he's like, "No, seriously, I could make I could make some music for you if you want." And Tarkovsky was like, "No, I use Bach for this part." And then just make these ambient sounds for the other part. He's like, "Okay." <laughs> Well, that's because Tarkovsky thought cinema was a separate art form from like music and paintings and things. And so he wanted to use that, I think, 
as little as possible to focus on cinema as art rather than cinema plus music, right? Because suddenly you're bringing in other art forms and that might diminish the impact of just the cinema, like like just the, the, this the is frame. This, this is the same guy that, that has created. those plates with the partitions so none of his food touches. <laughs> he doesn't like his art to mix. <laughs> I'm surprised there were paintings on the wall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then there's those long, long shots of the paintings too. So I don't know. Definitely a lot to lot to unpack here. And so we talked a little bit about the black and white, but just his use of color. There are very specific colors I noticed a lot of in this movie. Light blue, especially. There's a lot of light blue. Like when Hari first shows up, she's wearing light blue and the the pillows and the sheets are light blue. And Hari's wearing light blue when she shows up? I thought she was wearing that suede. I thought mm, Hari was okay, wearing that suede time. dress. Okay, maybe the first time. So the let shawl. me correct that. She does at some point. She is wearing mm-hmm. like a light blue shirt. Light blue, shirt. yeah. Yeah, I think when she's sleeping. So maybe not when she first shows up. And she's wearing light blue in that the, the kind of resurrection scene. She's wearing light blue for that scene from memory. <laughs> did they do that uh, resurrection scene in reverse, some of it? It looked almost as if they did. Like some of the scenes where she was like jutting out from the floor. I don't think so. Oh, okay. Maybe she just did a good job of being especially creepy. <laughs> yeah, maybe I wasn't looking sort closely. Sort of unnatural I didn't get the impression. Movement. Yeah, it's a good bit of kind of performance art on her behalf. It oh, reminded me a little yeah. bit of when Pris is dying in Blade Runner. Is that almost mechanical sort of twitchiness to her movement in that scene? It's uh, like a lot of things in the film, reasonably unnerving. <laughs> yeah, because this is the scene where you have to pretend like you just drank liquid oxygen and then <laughs> you're being brought back to life. <laughs> I think she did a pretty good job. <laughs> Okay, this might be complete garbage, but it's too entertaining not to bring up. <laughs> Sorry. We're <laughs> <But> cool with that. <laughs> the internet tells me, so take it take it for whatever it's worth. The internet tells me that the actress who played Hari... I love anything that begins with the internet. <laughs> exactly. That the actress who played Hari, uh, Natalia, I'm not going to take a stab at her last name, revealed in a 2000... Uh, Wonderchuk or something? Yeah. Revealed in a 2010 interview that she fell in love with Tarkovsky during the filming of Solaris, and after their relationship ended, she herself became suicidal. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah, I read that. Did yeah. you read that? And she actually, I believe, said that, yeah, she actually, I believe, said that those actions were almost inspired by playing that character, Ooh. which is just <laughs> kind of next level weird. <laughs> it is, isn't it? That's, oh, that is why I had to bring yeah. it up. I was like, what? Wait. <laughs> Yeah, I also read that he had originally actually wanted to cast his ex-wife in that role. Wow. Uh, yeah, I think I heard that. And then there was like a Swedish actress at one point he wanted yeah. to cast. B.B. Yeah. Anderson, I think. And then they just it didn't work out or something. It's a strange guy. <laughs> Things were going so well with the cinematographer that he thought he'd bring his ex-wife in. <laughs> Smooth things over. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of like deep purple color, like his jacket at the beginning, like one of the first scenes we get is Chris Kelvin wandering around in in a lake near his house with this like purple leather jacket on. I think Sartorius is wearing purple later and his mother has like a purple scarf on. So just like, I don't know, those specific colors, a lot of red. And then of course, all of the, the yellows and sort of browns and tans that, uh, Hari is wearing and sort of those the wood panels on the wall. And so, I mean, it's a very specific color palette. Do you think that's influenced by the time in which it was made? I 
don't know. Like it comes up Soviet so- Russia. Then? <laughs> well, I guess I don't know. I mean, I, I I guess I don't know what the color palette of Soviet Russia was in the sixties. <laughs> but I was thinking of the use of color in the sixties in the United States. Like color was it? Like color was a very important and obnoxious loud color in a way that hadn't been used or hadn't been worn. Maybe I'm thinking more of clothing and that it hadn't. Yeah, been sort worn of the yellows and the together. browns, probably. Yeah. yeah, and the sort of crocheted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, crochet look. man was big. <laughs> Let me let me let me take this doily off this couch and wear it. <laughs> so that's certainly true, but I do wonder how much uh, that influence would have reached the Soviet Union. I mean, maybe. I mean, I guess Tarkovsky did go to like film festivals and stuff abroad, so maybe he saw these things. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like part of this movie is filmed in Japan, mm-hmm. right? The city of the future, <laughs> and that long, like five minute drive through the town. Yeah, I did. Um, I did read something about that because I was watching that scene. To be honest, I was kind of thinking, "What am I missing here? What? Why is this? St- why is this scene still happening?" Yeah. Um, <laughs> <so> <laughs> I, I went after some information after I'd watched the movie, and it would appear that getting permission to film outside of the USSR was not easy for Soviet filmmakers. So to justify the trip to Tokyo and filming there for something that would look more futuristic than Soviet Russia. Um, to justify the expense and the bother, they made it a pretty big chunk of the movie just so they wouldn't get in trouble. <laughs> you know, this is really making me rethink Tarkovsky a lot, these discussions. Because, <laughs> like, am I thinking, am I going to think more or less of him? Because a lot of it seemed to be just based on limitations he had, but he used those limitations extremely effectively. No, he did. So. A man knows how, to make, how to, knows how to make lemonade. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so I couldn't. Fi- I could not figure out what was happening in that scene. I was like, "This is this is like as long as the the slit scan sequence in Space Odyssey, but it's driving." <laughs> yeah, we watched this separately. And at that point, I did text Tofu going, "Mate, what's with the driving?" <laughs> and it's like a self driving car too, right? <laughs> Yeah, so I wasn't not even sure driving. what was going on there. At first, I thought maybe he was on a train, and then I realized, no, he's definitely definitely in a car, but I can't see his hands on the wheel. <laughs> Chris, at some point, decides to shoot Hari in a missile back into the planet. She gets resurrected. Hari 2.0. Hari 2.0. <laughs> she exactly. drinks liquid oxygen to kill herself, and then comes back. <laughs> and then... Remind me, what ultimately happens well, to her? Well, but I mean, you have to back up. Like, why did yeah. she drink liquid oxygen, right? I mean, they have this this struggle with this of knowing that you're not real. That I guess um, my understanding was that the the guests, whatever they, being that they're created from like a person's memories or, or dreams or whatever, that they don't, I don't know, they don't, they themselves have like their own memories, they just have that person's, like, the right, reflections yeah. of, like, that person's memories of them or whatever. So for me, yeah, that always, that seemed like what it was, is that she could only really be a representation of what he remembered, right? Mm-hmm. So if that's the way he remembered her, then it's kind of fated for this to continue to happen over and over and over if he, you know, yeah. he continues to stay on the space station. Yeah, it's a good point that, yeah, this version of Hari that exists is a suicidal person, and it's like this self-fulfilling think that's that she is doomed in this way but for me harry's kind of crisis of identity might be the single most interesting thing in the film for me where she continues to become more and more human the longer she's around chris but that also 
develops this understanding within herself that, but I'm not. Mm -hmm. I'm just this projection of this guy. So, but I feel like a human. So, what am I then? Yeah. Sounds good to me, man. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. I like that. that, that, I like that interpretation. I actually had not that question. That's that's cool. What makes somebody a human? You know, like what defines humanity? And can you become human? And can love make you more human? Like Pinocchio. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, do we know? Real boy. (laughs) <laughs> Does anyone here know how much Blade Runner may have been inspired by this particular movie? Do we have any I, proof that there? Yeah, I was wondering direct- when the um when was um the robot's dream of electric sheep Androids. written? Androids. Dream oh, of, of course. Sheep. Yeah, yeah well, I was wondering course, when yeah. that was written in comparison because yeah, there's some there's certainly some crossover. So that's a good point. I think it might little, have been written before '68. Okay, so another one of the other things the film touches on, which I think is really interesting and still completely relevant, you know, the better part of 50 years onwards, is this idea of just destroying anything that we don't completely understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, everyone's kind of freaked out by this ocean on Solaris that can do these things to us. So our re- the response of some people in the film is to blast it with some rays to kill it. Or yeah. just to evoke yeah. any reaction, I think, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. And they definitely got a reaction. Uh, so one of the themes that's brought up a couple of times in the movie uh, and just specifically stated by the characters is just the limitations of what humans are able to achieve and maybe the idea that there's only so much that we can do with science i mean it's kind of just this what the space station is to some extent it's just because it's kind of flailing and like throwing stuff against the wall to see if something sticks and nothing does and like we'll never get past. Uh, that's kind of the sense I got is that no one's ever really going to figure out what this planet is. Well, that's sort of the point, right? Is that there's just some things that are unknowable. Right. And so one thing that I didn't know the first time I watched this, but doing research is that Tarkovsky was a very spiritual person. So in a lot of ways, the movie is talking about like, yeah, okay, well, all the science is interesting, right? But there's only so far that that can ever get you. Which you see a lot in this. You see a lot in this film. I wondered if you were going to try and make the argument that the ocean represented God or something. No, 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 no. I don't think that specifically. Okay. More that like we're just maybe eventually going to get to this place, and there's going to be something that's unknowable, and that that's going to be extremely frustrating for us as a as a race of beings. Yeah, I mean that's certainly Lem's theme in uh, in the book. Okay, so she kills herself the second time and gets resurrected. And then what happens at the end? I'm trying to remember that. She goes to Sartorius and he uses the accelerator on her off screen. Yeah, there is a very specific device that they've developed Mm -hmm. that can completely annihilate matter. So that (laughs) Hari's gone. She's never going to come back. And they suggest that Chris should go back to Earth. And then the next scene we see is him on Earth walking back up to his house and kind of falling down at the feet of his father. And the camera pans out way into the distance. And we see that everything seems to be in sort of a fog or like the sort of surface of the planet Solaris. So the question, I guess, there is... Where is he? Yeah. Where is he? Is that him? Is that not him? Is he really back on Earth and this is some projection on Solaris? Or is it more a figurative 
flourish at the or, end. Or, you know, the closer he gets to Solaris, the more it creates stuff from his memory, like his home, his father. Right, yeah. Is that you know, just a separate projection, see, and separate from, from him now? And the thing for me that I, well, what I imagine they were getting at would be, does it matter? Oh. Well, let's answer it before we decide whether it matters <laughs> or not. <laughs> Billy and Topher, what do you think? <laughs> that was interesting. I can't say I was surprised by it. It's not that I saw it coming, but as soon as the camera started to pull back, I was like, oh, yeah, he never left Solaris. He's decided that, you know, and it brings up that question of is memory more important than life to some people? You know, like, is, can you ever reach a point where you decide that it is actually better just to live in the past than to think about the present or the future? Um, just, I mean, as with the entire movie, it just brings up all of those you know, questions around humanity and memory. And yeah, so I found that interesting. Yeah. I think we probably had a fairly similar take then. I, I suspected that he kind of gave up on Earth and his yeah. life and was like, uh, you know what, this this works for me. Yeah. So you think he knows that he's, a, he's on uh, yeah, Solaris that was versus my, that Earth? that was my take. Okay. Yeah. So my interpretation was that uh, the whole thing was actually created by the ocean. So it's, it's not the real Chris. It's a it's a fake version of Chris. Like this is just the planet trying to explain more or to explore more about what humans are like, and so it's trying to recreate like full scenes from memory rather than just people. Mm. I remember that's what came across to me the first time I saw it was that oh the planet is kind of evolving to this new state where it can just it's just trying to recreate everything. I just even imagined that island sort of expanding <laughs> outward and like maybe trying to recreate the entire Earth. I, don't know, I think that's probably stretching a little bit, but I quite like that. I might jump ship. Yeah. <laughs> 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 okay, so another thing that Adam had mentioned uh, ahead of the show was that one of the things about Tarkovsky and his work is just that a lot of it is supposed to be extremely ambiguous or not directly interpretable. So I think that's this is one of those scenes where you could probably argue it to death, and maybe we, yeah, let's let's keep doing it. <laughs> uh, one alternate uh, interpretation I saw was that it's the real Chris, but it's the planet attempting to give him the reconciliation with his father that he could never actually have for whatever reason. Like because it's possible that his father's died, right? Because they have that conversation at the beginning about he, where he asks Chris. Are you jealous that Burton gets to bury me instead of you or something to that effect? So it could be that by the time Chris makes it back to Earth that he couldn't have that reunion with his father. And so this is the plan offering that up instead. What's the um there's a reference, the the pose that, that Chris is in it's, with his father right at the end. It's a Rembrandt painting, isn't it? Yeah, it's the prodigal son. The return of the prodigal son. Yeah, it's a Rembrandt. Right. Yeah. So there again is that connection with Tarkovsky to to other works of art that I guess in some ways, he's he's not trying to do like the music, and then other ways he is trying to do with the paintings and the references to these other works of art. So it's, yeah, it's pretty fascinating. I'd never would picked up on that at all. For someone who wants it to be, you know, a separate these clear lines between the art forms. It's a strange mm. move yeah, to then weird. be having such a direct nod. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, no, that's a good that's a good pickup because I never would have noticed that. I mean, it seemed like a very I didn't notice pose, so I, yeah. I, yeah, I can't claim that I... <laughs> Topher's really good at Wikipedia. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I guess My that's other, why we're supposed to watch the Moonlighting as a fine art. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's why we're supposed to watch the movie 10 times or whatever. The Tarkovsky wants us to watch yeah. it. 
or watch it a second time with a commentary where they tell you these things. <laughs> that helps too. <laughs> Cheating. So, okay, uh, Billy Topher, what did you think of the movie overall? It sounds like you're reasonably glad you watched it. Overall, I I really enjoyed it. I'm glad I watched it. Um, I don't know that it is a movie for everybody. I watched it with my wife and a friend of hers, and they hated it. <laughs> At one point, I had to go to the bathroom, and both of them were like, "Do not pause this movie. Just let it, just, just let it play, and we'll catch you up." Because they didn't want it to go on for any longer than it already did. And they came back, um, and it was the same but- shot. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But but as a as a film buff, I I I liked it a lot. I mean, and it's so easy to look at this. And then look at all of the sci-fi movies that have come after it and see where things have been borrowed or inspired by. And yeah, I, I thought it was great. Yeah, I dug the movie. Uh, I was on board. It uh, it certainly hasn't turned me off uh, at some point getting to Stalker, his film from, when was Stalker, 78 or? 79. 79. Yeah, can you check that out as well? Um, yeah, and as Billy said, it's yeah, it's not a film that everyone's going to like, which I think is great. I like films that <laughs> yeah. have an audience rather than try to please everyone and invariably you wind up, you know, really satisfying nobody. Um, but yeah, if people are, are fans of the genre and, you know, are, are interested in sitting down for something that is, you know, a bit of a think piece really, mm. then yeah, I'd recommend getting on board. Jess? Yeah, I I appreciated seeing it. I don't think I'm going to abide by Tarkovsky's wishes and watch it <laughs> several more times. <laughs> but I'm I'm glad I saw it. You know, and it, I think that, like you said, kind of it being a think piece. I think I think it's good to have movies that cause you to kind of reflect for a while afterwards. I don't know. I feel like it's how you can be like, you know, what this isn't. Uh, you know, it's not just entertainment. Something to distract, kind of turn off my brain for X amount of time. I think, think it's yeah. good to have that in the mix. I know on my end, it's just really enjoyed watching this a second time and picked up a lot more, I think, than I did the first time around. But I think, especially if you're trying to introduce anybody to this, the important thing to tell them off the bat is like, yeah, you don't, there might not be a literal, literal interpretation of every single scene that you watch. It's okay just to kind of sit back and feel what you're supposed to feel at this point and kind of make you know come up with your own opinions and yeah the first time around you watch it it's not even designed for you to fully understand it or probably not even the billionth time you watch it at least that's the design so that's the only thing i think i'd say to somebody before they watched it how about you adam yeah i think it would probably help to be a fan of of the genre i don't know that you would just you know introduce your eight-year-old nephew to this and be like hey (laughs) science fiction let's watch (laughs) Because I watched the movie, I hadn't seen the movie prior to this either. And the first time I was like, I'm not sure how I feel about that. That that wasn't really what I was expecting at all. And then I ended up watching it the second time. And I definitely got more out of it. And part of that was because I was also listening to the commentary. So there was a bit of hand-holding going on as well. But just individually just picking up on things and going, oh, okay, that's who that woman is. That's what the box is. Uh, okay, I see what's going on here. Like, I understand the painting a little more and stuff like that. So I found that. I found it, for me, a repeat viewing actually was much more uh, fulfilling than I thought it would be. But yeah, I don't know that this is a film for everyone. I think I would say that if it sounds like the sort of movie that you think you might be interested in, you'd probably be interested in it, honestly. But if it sounds like the sort of movie that you're like, oh, I don't know if that's for me, maybe it's not. And that fit, like you were talking about, the feeling of not quite knowing what's going on all the time totally works 
for your first time watching it, actually, because you kind of identify more with what Chris mm. is going through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. As you yeah. sit there going, what on earth is happening around yeah. me right now? Uh, so, Billy Topher, you have now watched something that we thought you should watch. So why don't you tell the world something you think they should experience? All right. I'm going to recommend something that's controversial. I'm sure that Topher is going to slam me for this because that's what he does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I am going to recommend the movie Sphere based on Michael Crichton's book, Sphere, which um, is very similar to this in some ways. It's clearly inspired from this. It's the story of a psychologist who is sent to the wreckage of a spaceship to keep track of the crew, but also to try to communicate with whatever is maybe inside. And I think it's a fun watch, and the book is one of my all-time favorites, so I'm going to recommend that. Uh, Billy will be shocked because I'm actually not going to slam him here because oh. I don't feel like I can because I've never made it all the way through. <laughs> <laughs> that was a slam. <laughs> I, If anyone likes the sound of Solaris or is a fan of Solaris, if you haven't seen a film from a few years ago now, uh, Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin, mm. Scarlett mm. Johansson playing an alien in the body of a human similar sort of thing with kind of you know she gets this or the alien played by Johansson gets this attachment to her human identity as it were um and it's another it's another film that's not for everyone um but if it does work for you I think it's a I think it's a really good watch so yeah I'm not gonna go too too far with my recommendation off what we were already talking about I guess I'm just gonna recommend if you like this movie then another Tarkovsky movie that I've seen that you'd like would be stalker which i actually liked a little bit better than solaris um as he does he thought he thinks that stalker is yeah considerably better i think uh i think he actually thought solaris was his worst picture at some point really wow yeah and yet probably his most uh his most well-known it's probably a toss-up between this and stalker but yeah uh it's it's a beautiful film it has a lot of the same themes about you know the limitations of human knowledge or experience and uh i think it's it's basically about i think maybe a meteorite or some sort of accident has happened on earth where there's this gigantic zone that uh people aren't allowed to go into that's walled off but may contain maybe a wish a room that you can enter where your wishes will be fulfilled (laughs) and there's a guy uh who's just simply known as stalker who knows how to traverse this beautiful but dangerous terrain and um yeah it's I don't know. I don't know if I have tons to say about it because it's one of those movies I want to go back and watch again, and it just left me with a lot more questions than than answers, which I think it was supposed to do. So, all right. Well, I'm going to upset the balance and uh, not recommend anything that's even close to being sci-fi. That's fine. <laughs> so, uh, for me, I think um, kind of that. What is your experience like? The human experience, and you know, kind of dealing with bigger themes of life and death, and even um, how like religion or those undertones, like you know, spirituality, kind of plays into that. Um, and so, going kind of going with another kind of darker think piece is um, I'm going to recommend the movie Wit that Emma Thompson did back in 2001, I believe. Um, and I think it's definitely not for everybody, and it's not a feel good movie, but um, I I like it a lot, and I think. I think it's worth seeing okay and then uh so for me i this wasn't this isn't really my recommendation but i feel it's remiss that someone should mention 2001 a space <laughs> <laughs> yeah. tarkovsky saw 2001 before he started making solaris and he hated it because he felt it was uh 
focus far too much on technology versus people and stuff. But I think they're actually getting at similar themes, just at different angles. So, and it's another, you know, epic, classic science fiction movie. Uh, so I, I just think it would be remiss if we went through without mentioning 2001. Yeah. But I think my actual recommendation uh, is the, I believe it's 2004 movie, The Fountain with Hugh Jackman. Because hmm. uh, this is another movie that deals with themes of uh, love and what it means to be human and uh there's a bunch of stuff involving like uh space travel and slightly disconcerting uh narrative that uh i find uh wraps up somewhat satisfactorily toward the end but it doesn't answer all the questions which i also like so i bet yeah the fountain's one i've been meaning to get to it's a darren aronofsky film isn't it yes yeah yeah that's one that i need to check off the list yeah uh i can see how that movie might not be for everyone but i enjoyed it quite a bit uh so billy and topher hosts of the we watch the thing podcast thank you very much for being on the show thank you for having us it's been an absolute pleasure thanks heaps it's been awesome are there places online that people can check out you and what you do uh, if people want to find us, you can do that at wewatchthething.com or at wewatchthething on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All right, cool. All Great right. talking with you. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Eve. wraps it up thanks so much for joining us we had a great time hope you really enjoyed it tune in next time when we'll be introducing another friend to one of our favorite movies see you then sorry have you got us back now yes yeah That's interesting. Our mixer turned itself off for some reason. Oh, okay. Well, it's done. It's done for the day. (laughs) Bye, guys. Did you you bring it to the wedding? (laughs) Maybe Maybe it's tired, too. It did rain through a fair bit of the wedding. Something could have shorted. Yeah. We we got to one of those awkward pauses where where I thought I had brought up a really good point and no one was saying anything. I was like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) 